the joy of What is the difference between a brilliant, masterful writer and the sort of writer we call a genius? I don't mean that distinction in the qualitative sense, where we declare the masterful writers to be merely good, while only the geniuses are truly great. Nonsense. The genius and the master are both great, but they're two different kinds of writer. The genius writer breaks new ground, while the master perfects the ground. When I think of master writers, I think of writers like Marilyn Robinson or Henry James, writers who didn't revolutionize the form or really expand the capacity of language, but who took the existing forms and the existing language and took them to new heights of power and perfection. They took the idea of the church and they built the cathedral with hundreds and thousands of beautifully crafted pieces all fitting together into one magnificent whole. But the genius is trickier. The genius does that which has never been done before, does that which has not previously been conceived of as possible. They do not build the cathedral, normally, but they invent the church, seemingly from thin air. The master refines their craft over a lifetime of labor. The genius bursts out onto the world with some intrinsical vision sparked only, or so it seems anyway, by the touch of the finger of God on their forehead or some lunacy buried in their brain. But what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like on the page? The best definition I've ever encountered as to what defines the work of genius is separate from other works, even other works of equally immense quality, comes from a film by the Italian filmmaker, novelist, communist, and atheist, Pierpaolo Pasolini. The movie is called Teorema, or Theorem. It came out in 1968, and it's billed generally as a purely intellectual thriller which is to say that it's a complete snoozer. But there is among all the Marxist pontificating and boring philosophical pandering a scene where a red-haired bourgeois teenager lays it all out while painting zigzags onto panes of glass. He says, and I'm paraphrasing a translation here, so give me some liberty. He says, the genius must invent new techniques unrecognizable, which are unlike any previous method to make their world unlike any other, where the previous standards don't apply, where the standards must be new, like the technique itself is new. No one must ever catch him out as naive. Everything must be presented as perfect, based on unknown, unquestionable rules, like a madman. I can't correct anything, and nobody must notice. A sign painted on a sign corrects a sign painted earlier on another paint. But everyone must believe that it isn't the trick of an untalented artist, an impotent artist. Not at all. It must look like a sure decision, fearless, lofty, almost arrogant. Nobody must know that art succeeds by chance. When I think about this idea of the genius in terms of writing, the name that comes to my mind is a woman named Clarice Lispector. Clarice Lispector was a Brazilian upper-class housewife and she would insist on being referred to as a housewife, not a writer in interviews, who in her spare time wrote, or perhaps it is more accurate to say to fill her time wrote, a mountainous catalog of short stories and novels. Born in a West Ukraine shuttle in 1920, she immigrated with her family to Brazil as an infant so as to escape the nightmare of the Russian Revolution, recognized from her very early childhood as being both profoundly intelligent and remarkably attractive. Her biographers are always comparing her to Marlene Dietrich. She rose above her family's limited means to attend all the most prestigious schools in Brazil, 
and ultimately studied law at the University of Brazil, Brazil's foremost institution of higher learning. Well, in law school, though, she started doing a lot of writing, first of journalistic articles and then short stories, and in 1943, at the age of 23, she published her first novel, entitled Near to the Wild Heart, which catapulted her to national fame and is seen in Brazil as being as revolutionary as the writing of Joyce had been a decade before in the English-speaking world. And from there, she went on to spend the rest of her life, up until her death in 1977 from ovarian cancer, dazzling Brazil with masterpiece after masterpiece until she was considered the greatest modern Brazilian writer and, in the words of her biographer Benjamin Moser, the most important Jewish writer after Kafka. Modest praise. But what makes all that success, all those accolades, all the hero worship and bronze statues and receifs so astounding, is that Lispector's writing, her style, her ideas, her stories, her books, are just about the weirdest things I have ever read. Everything she ever wrote is so perplexing, so confounding, so vicious, so honest, so strange, so inexplicable, that it boggles the mind. Near to the Wild Heart, for example, contains near its beginning a long passage where the narrator, a clear stand-in for Lispector herself, confesses that she is drawn to evil, longs for evil, suspects that nothing will ever satisfy her in her life so much as the doing of evil. Her novel, The Passion, according to G.H., is 200 pages about squashing a single cockroach that ends with the narrator sucking the gooey pulp that oozes from the cockroach's corpse into her mouth so they can become one together in the void of the universe. But novels are long. If we're ever going to get to the bottom of the question of genius, we need something smaller to examine, something we can fit easily into our dainty little mouths. Let us take for our specimen one single short story she wrote, entitled Report on the Thing. Report on the Thing was the first thing I ever read by Clarice Lispector. And after I read it, I made all my bookish friends read it and forced them to talk to me about it for hours. What was it? What the hell was she talking about? Why had I never heard of this genius before? Report on the Thing is a story about an alarm clock. Or, more precisely, a story about a love affair that happens between an unnamed narrator, presumably Lispector herself, and a very specific alarm clock owned by her friend. An alarm clock that the narrator has never seen, an alarm clock that the narrator will never see. This thing is the most difficult for a person to understand, Lispector begins. Keep trying. Don't get discouraged. It will seem obvious, but it is extremely difficult to know about it for it involves time. We divide time when in reality it is not divisible. It is always immutable, but we need to divide it. And to that end, a monstrous thing was created. The clock. I am not going to speak of clocks, but of one particular clock. I'm showing my cards. I'll say up front what I have to say and without literature. This report is the anti-literature of the thing. The phrase anti-literature is apt. Because Lispector isn't writing the way that anyone before her, or even likely since her, has conceived of writing. And she knows it and declares it, much the same way that that other candidate for being a genius writer, Paul Ceylon, would insist that his poems were not poems but noems. This is not literature. This is anti-literature. This is not a story. This is a report. This is something entirely other because it aspires to communicate something that is entirely other. The clock of which I speak is electronic and has an alarm. The brand is Veglia, which means awake, 
Awake to what, my God? To time, to the hour, to the instant. This clock is not mine, but I took possession of its infernal, tranquil soul. It is not a wristwatch. Therefore, it is freestanding. It is less than an inch tall and stands upon the surface of a table. I would like its actual name to be Sveglia, but the owner of the clock wants its name to be Horatio. No matter, because the main thing is that it is time. Its mechanism is very simple. It does not have the complexity of a person, but it is more people than people. Is it Superman? No. It comes straight from the planet Mars, so it seems. If that is where it is from, then that is where it shall one day return. It is silly to state that it does not need to be wound, since this is the case with other timepieces, as with mine that is a wristwatch, that is shock-resistant, that can get as wet as you like. Those are even more than people, but at least they are from Earth. The Sveglia is from God. Divine human brains were used to capture whatever this watch should be. I am writing about it, but have yet to see it. It will be the encounter. Sveglia, awake, woman, awake, to see what must be seen. It is important to be awake in order to see, but it is also important to sleep in order to dream about the lack of time. Sveglia is the object. It is the thing with a capital letter. I wonder, does Sveglia see me? Yes, it does. As if I were another object. It recognizes that sometimes we too come from Mars. What Lespector engages in is a sort of stream of consciousness, something in fact that goes beyond stream of consciousness into writing by free association. She veers erratically from one narrative to another, one idea to another, all of them orbiting rhetorically around this idea of Sveglia, but hardly any of them having what you might call a clear and coherent connection to the clock in question. At one point, for example, she starts talking about a man she knows who also owns a Sveglia, and how this man one time stepped on a candle, which caused, for reasons nine doctors couldn't explain, his foot to swell up with gangrene. It was going to have to be amputated. But then he has a dream where a horse steps on his foot and his foot is cured, or almost cured. But then his wife gets sick. She seems almost dead. She's lying on the dinner table, basically dead. But then he does the same movements over her body that he used to fix his sveglia one time when it broke not touching her, just over her like a priest giving a blessing. And bang, she's cured. The wife opened her eyes, Lespector writes. She was in perfect health, and she's still alive, may God keep her. This has to do with Sveglia. I don't know how, but that it does, no question. And then a couple lines later she announces, I am in perfect physical and mental health. But one night, I was sleeping soundly and could be heard saying in a loud voice, I want to have a baby with Sveglia. With every paragraph, with every line, the specter hurls at you one insanity after another, one utterly ridiculous thing to say or think, and yet because it is pivoted on this one idea, this singular thing with a capital T, it maintains a magical, incoherent coherence. You are enraptured. You are sucked in. Whenever I try to pull out a suitable quote to evoke the story, I find myself wanting to expand the quote from one paragraph to two paragraphs to the entire page to the entire story. There is a way in which, as Lespector says of time, that her writing feels indivisible. To excerpt her is to butcher her. To summarize her is to butcher her. What is the thing? The thing is the thing. The thing is only the thing. The thing is indivisible, indescribable, can only be evoked as it is being evoked, by raving like a lunatic about a clock. Sveglia is dumb. 
It acts without premeditation. I am now going to say a very serious thing that will seem like heresy. God is dumb because he doesn't understand. He doesn't think. He just is. It's true that it's a kind of dumbness that executes itself, but he commits many errors and knows it. Just look at us who are a grave error. Just look at how we organize ourselves into society and intrinsically from one to another. But there is one error he does not commit. He does not die. Sveglia does not die either. I have still not seen Sveglia, as I have mentioned. Perhaps seeing it is wet. I know everything about it, but the owner does not want me to see it. She is jealous. Jealousy eventually drips from being so wet. Anyhow, our earth risks becoming wet with feelings. The rooster is Sveglia. The egg is pure Sveglia. But the egg only when whole, complete, white, its shell dry, completely oval. Inside it is life. Wet life. But eating raw yolk is Sveglia. What is she even talking about? I haven't any idea. But it feels like something. It feels so strongly like something that every time I read this story, I find myself insisting to myself that it must be something. I cannot describe it. I cannot process it. I cannot even intuit it. But it's there. I know that it is there. There is, as Pasolini prescribes, a logic. A logic beyond me, but a logic. We talked in the last episode about how the joy of reading James Baldwin was encountering his immense intelligence. Reading Lespector is the same, and yet their intelligences are entirely different. Baldwin's mind is disciplined, controlled, a massive engine pulling massive social and political weights up the steep incline of our individual and societal stupidity. But Lespector's is a hurricane, a gargantuan force careening wildly across the world, ripping up trees and houses, crashing them together, hurling them into the air, hurling them at the stars, and then somehow managing to knock the stars from the sky. You do not follow her. You do not understand her. You just witness her. And by witnessing her, by witnessing the chaos of her intelligence, by gazing into the abyss of this inexplicable logic that exists only in the recesses of Lespector's mind, she delivers the joy that is at the core of the joy of genius, the joy of encountering sentences, moments, phrases, ideas that you had never imagined existing before, that surprise you, that surprise you the way that the perfect gift surprises you, or love at first sight surprises you, or revelation itself surprises you. Here is the thing that is unlike everything else. Here is the thing that you discover like people once discovered continents. Here is the thing that as you read it, grows inside your mind to encompass all things, to be all fixations, to be all feelings of desire, all confusions of existence, all obsessions, all neuroses. Here, in a string of words only a few pages long, is the gateway to a previously impossible world, to the Mars of the mind, to the Mars of Lespector's mind. To read her is to feel an intimacy with a writer that is unparalleled in literature, an intimacy that expands your own understanding of what it is to exist as a conscious thing. Because to read her is to become one with her, to meld with her, or at least feel as if you've melded with her. And it is in feeling that oneness that you begin to understand how a writer so strange as to be this barbarous could become a national icon. There is a famous musician in Brazil, for example, who likes to claim in interviews that the first time he read the Spectre's novel Agua Viva, which is stylistically almost identical to Report on the Thing, he read it 100 times in a row and still reads it every month. 
When I first read Agua Viva, I found myself standing in a library, saying to myself over and over again, wow, whoa, wow, whoa, with every paragraph. And then when I was finished, I felt there was a closeness between her and I that I had not even felt with people whom I've claimed to have loved. The specter comes into you like a ghost, possesses you, takes possession of some part of your own tranquil infernal soul, and thereafter exists forever in your consciousness. A little Clarice, her eyebrows sharp as razors, whispering in your ear for the rest of your life, utterly insane things that ring out like the undeniable truth. Thank you. As ever, I've been your host, Brian Davis, the world's foremost literary pundit, if you exclude all the other literary pundits. If you're interested in Clarice Lispector, I have some recommendations to make. First and foremost, you can actually go read Report on the Thing right now for free. Vice Magazine printed a translation of the story on its website a few years ago, and it's still up. I'll put the exact link in the description. Second is her novel Agua Viva. Like Report on the Thing, Agua Viva is an avalanche of free association, of stream of consciousness, of wildness and newness and strangeness. I am not kidding about my description of my reaction to reading that novel. It is like nothing else. But, if you're worried that all these free associative stream-of-conscious novels might be slightly too much for you to handle, I can also strongly recommend her first novel, Near to the Wild Heart. Near to the Wild Heart is not a chill, traditional novel by any means, but it is grounded more in a concrete narrative about both coming of age and a disintegrating marriage. It's a good way to learn how to swim without drowning, to my mind. And it is, in and of itself, a marvelous piece of writing. I have a writer friend who once told me that his highest aspiration in life was to write just a single page as beautiful as the first pages of Near to the Wild Heart. I'd also like to remind you that you can reach me at any time you so choose at vainlydrabsatan at gmail.com, address once again in the description. Anything you might have to say about this podcast or my particular opinions or these books or even requests for future episodes, I'd be excited to hear from you. And, of course, I'd appreciate any reviews you might write of The Joy of Serious Literature on iTunes or any recommendations you might offer to any of your acquaintances to check out this particular container of Internet Blather. Thanks for listening. Godspeed.